The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Jamie Premack Sullivan, star of Bravo's TV's Jersey Bell and author of The Southern Education of a Jersey Girl, Adventures in Life and Love in the Heart of Dixie. Welcome to the show, Jamie. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you guys so much for having me. Your new book. Okay, is this your first book? It is. It is. Yeah. Okay, well, so that makes it exciting. And uh, why did you decide to write the book now? Um, well, you know, I, I, um, after Jersey Bell was on the air about three weeks, I started a digital series called Coffee Talk on Facebook. And that following picked up very quickly. And um, the women who were following me on Coffee Talk had so many questions about my journey, about how I packed it all up from California and made the move to Alabama, about what the transformation was like, about, you know, living in a community where I didn't know anyone and didn't have any family. And they were relating their questions to changes that they were having to make in their own life that they were feeling a lot of anxiety about. And there was no real way for me to answer all the questions online because what went from 10 questions a day quickly became 100. And I felt like I had a story to tell that could appease some of their concerns and some of their interest, um, but not in a way that I could do it in an individual email. So I had this idea for the book because I had learned so much about life and love and friendship living below the Mason-Dixon line um, in the last place I thought I would ever learn any of that. And, so this um, is like your journey that, that you could consolidate it. As you say, these women had hundreds of questions, so you put it all together in your book, which yes. is a great book, by the yep. way. Uh, one of the things, Thanks, I think yep. it was one of your testimonials to the book, uh, one of, the, one of your, um, the people who uh, wrote a testimonial said, Jamie shares her formula to adjusting to life way outside of your comfort zone. And to me, that is key, because I think so many of us are in that position, maybe not exactly the same journey that you took, but that whole idea of living your life outside of your comfort zone and how do you do it and how do you navigate the waters for that, which is what you talk about in the book, which I think is obviously... Right. And, yeah. And we read all these memes about how romantic life should be outside our comfort zone. The truth is, it's scary, and it's not great every day. And, you know, there is something to be said for staying in the confines of your comfort zone. But that was not my choice. I made the choice to, like, like that testimonial said, live way outside my comfort zone. And the magical things did happen, but not without... I mean, I got knocked down a million times, and, you know, I still get knocked down. Um, I still have days where I feel like I'm the only person who doesn't fit in. 
I still have days where I desperately miss home. Um, I have days where I wonder if I'll ever have real peace. But the truth is that for any of us who make sacrifice or make choice um, to pursue the bigger picture, like love, like family, like children or whatever, you know, I think the notion that it has to be great every single day for it to uh, validate your choice is just, it's insanity. It'll make you crazy. Well, I think we're kind of stuck on that happiness thing and that we should always be comfortable and we should always be in our comfort zone and we don't really learn anything from that. But, um, and, and you're, you know, you're, I'll say, a famous person, a well-known person. And so, you know, the expectation is sometimes, well, you could handle anything anyway. uh, And so you're never really going to be out of your comfort zone, which is not true. But, okay, so let's start with the book, though. Like, how did this begin? How did this journey begin? What happened? How did you get in this situation? And what is the, you know, situation in the book that you describe? Okay. What, yeah. So I was writing for different magazines. I was freelance writing for different magazines. And um, I was in Birmingham, Alabama for work. And I met this older gentleman who sent me a drink. And he was charming and handsome, but he was a lot older and very Southern and not my type. I was very New Jersey at that time and dating sort of more the Jersey Shore type of guy. Um, and I was a lot younger. I was only 26. Um, so you were 26. He was 40, was he? Is that what the, yeah. I think is? Yeah. Yep. And so he sent me a drink and we had a nice conversation. He asked for my number. I said no. And that was that. And then I went about my life. And a year later, to the month, I went back to that cafe and he walked in. And whether it's fate or whether it was coincidence or however you want to look at it, I think it's not so much that he walked in, um, but more that we saw the call to action and decided to actually act on it. And so I ended up giving him a ride home, um, and he called me the next day and asked me out for dinner. And really, it was after that dinner that I knew that this was different. I I don't know how I knew people always want to ask me like, well, what did Michael do that was so different? It, it wasn't so much Michael as much as it was me. I just felt much more myself and I had been searching for that for so long. And then over the course of our courtship, which took when I tell you forever, I'm talking about forever. Um, (laughs) But, you know, I want to, but Jamie, uh, just a little background on you, because you were one of these, as at least as you described uh, in uh, in your book, I mean, you were one of these people who was like always up for anything and, and you know, dating, whatever, new adventures, new stuff, but you were willing to walk away because you really didn't care. So you could, I mean, as I, but this was somehow yes, different. I'm a runner. I am a runner. I always have one foot out the door. Always. I'm always trying to move on to the next thing. I have a very hard time staying in one place. So, but I was very honest with Michael about that. I said to him, don't, you know, I don't know that this is going to become anything, even if I wanted to, because I'm very self-destructive. And I think one of the things I was most attracted to Michael about was he leaned into that. He never tried to shy away from how destructive I was. He never got scared. He always uh, set the tone and the pace for the relationship. And no matter how I tried to rush it, he wouldn't bother. He knew that if I allowed, 
if he allowed me to take control of the relationship, it would self-destruct. And he just wasn't going to let that happen because he really liked me. So we sat, you know, I went on his pacing. I, reluctantly, you read the book. I didn't like it. I was frustrated. I mean, I was young and, you know, I equated love to sex and he wasn't having sex with me. So I thought, well, he must not like me. Um, and it was just a very different relationship. It was different than anything I had ever been a part of. And as soon as it got, you know, even remotely serious, I did what I always do. I left and I moved to L.A. And, you know, I think he was scared. He was spooked by the move um, initially. And then he realized, okay, this is part of what she does. So I'll play along. And he came so to visit me in L.A. And yeah, that's part of what you do. Because I think people want to hear that. Like, because I think a lot of us have that, pro- you know, that is an issue. Like something you're afraid of getting once you get too close or once you feel someone is really cares for so you I, or loves you. Yeah, go ahead. I'm damaged in the way that a lot of times for me, once I know I have you, once I know you like me or you're in, you know, whatever, that's enough for me. I don't need to see how it plays out because I've already won in my mind. And you know what? Like I'm not a psychoanalyst or a therapist or anything like that, but I do take a really hard look at how it affected me when my dad died. You know, I was a teenager. I was trying to figure out teenage love and... You know, my dad just died. And I think that part of me um, wanted to run away from that. And I started running and I never stopped. Um, so, you know, even in my marriage now, Michael and I have been together, we've been together 11 years. We've been married nine and a half. We have three children. Um, even now, I go through self-destructive periods where the difference is that I am brave enough to look at my husband and say, uh, here is what I'm struggling with. And I feel like I'm going to make grave mistakes and I feel like I want to run away and I feel like I can't be a wife right now. And he has always said, okay, well, let's, let's find a practical solution to what you're feeling. Because if he dismissed me, he knows I would self-destruct and he never does. He never dismisses me. Uh, I, you know, I tease him all the time and say, when I give your eulogy, I'm going to go over and over and over again about how, you know, how often you could have just dismissed my insanity and my fear. Um, and he never did. I mean, he just never does. He's such a good friend in that way. Um, but there's and something about that you that must everything. be exciting and attractive, you know, that, that sort of fits into his uh, stability, should I, or his, you know, very different way of operating. He has a different operating system, but it fits. Absolutely. Yeah. Michael will tell you that he has never met a woman like me and that for all the crazy and expressed dissatisfaction in different parts of my life, he will tell you that, you know, I put, when I laid my eyes on Jamie, I could, I I could never look away. Mm -hmm. And that is just how it is for him. So he is, as equally as enamored with me as I am with him for different reasons. So, you know, but like, look, some days I struggle with it. Legitimately, I go, is this all there is? And I'll be completely honest with your listeners right now. I'm going through like an actual midlife crisis. And it's been very difficult. I think people want to discredit them like they're not a real thing. It's a very real thing. I'm turning 40 in October. I'm having a really hard time with it. I'm... 
you know, I'm taking a hard look at everything in my life all the time. Am I fit enough? Am I having enough sex? You know, am I parenting well enough? Are, are these the right friends I should have? I don't like my furniture. You know, I, it, it, some of it is justified and some of it is irrational, um, but it's, it's a real, like, thing. And my husband has turned 40. He's also turned 50. And, you know, he says to me all the time, lean into it. If you need to go away and dance and lay by a pool or whatever, go see your sisters, go to New Jersey, whatever you need to do for a couple of days to sort of put a Band-Aid on it, because the truth is there is no quick fix for what you're feeling. You have to just get through it. Sometimes it takes a year. But I, I am so lucky that I have a partner who is more concerned with being a partner than he is sometimes with his own happiness because well, he it, sees the big picture. Does he ever get frustrated with you? Does he, does he ever, like, you know... They, you know, take, you know, look at you and say, you know, uh, does he ever say I can't handle this or it's too much or I feel overwhelmed? Never. He never has. And when Michael tells me he has to go away, I don't ask questions. I just say, I got you. Whatever you need, I'll take care of the kids. Go. I mean, we we just work very well together. He never has tried to change me. He doesn't cramp my style. I don't do that to him. You know, we just, we just, um, you know, even when we are dissatisfied, because listen, and this is what I try to tell people in Coffee Talk all the time, marriage is so hard. You know, the happiest you will ever be, I always say, in my opinion, is right before you, is the year you're planning your wedding. I mean, that's, and then it's real work. People want to know, well, why, what is the work, you know? And they ask me all the time. And I say the work is showing up when you've checked out. When you don't want a wife today, you have to wife. You know, you don't have the luxury of being like, ah, I'm just not going to wife today. The same way you can't just not mom today. You have to show up in a marriage. And, you know, sometimes Michael wants to, I'm sure, tune me out. And other times I, if I never hear him speak again, it'll be too soon. Aren't there creative ways? Are there, there are, and I think maybe there are more choices today. There are creative ways to be married. You don't necessarily have to be married in that kind of standard, typical way. You can just make, there are other, you're talking about being the midlife crisis, 40 years old. And I think what you're saying is very, kind of uh, normal in terms of like now the choices I make, you know, the the choices get less and less. I'm going to be 40s, 50s, so I better make the right choices. And I am you know, thinking about what I do. And um, I think that's all normal. How you respond to it is like a personal and is a unique way, I Absolutely. guess. Absolutely. Yeah. 100%. And Michael and I are really, as, for tr- as traditional as you would think we are, we're really not that traditional. And you know, we, there have been times where we've looked at each other and said, listen, let's take the romantic pressure off the relationship right now. Let's just look at the next month as friends. Because the Are you talking about sex? Nobody, when you say take the romantic, like we're not going to have sex, or what's the romantic like, pressure? Like all romantic expectation is off the table. So I'm not walking around getting my feelings hurt because Michael doesn't tell me I look beautiful when I'm feeling needy. Or, because what happens is this. I'm up and down, right? So there are periods of time in, the, in my marriage where I need more from him. And Michael is not a verbal affirmation man. We went through so much therapy to get to this place, by the way, because we were not always here. There was a time in our marriage where I was angry all the time. 
because I felt like he didn't see me. I felt like he didn't notice me. I felt like I was whatever. And we went to therapy, and in therapy, I learned that Michael's love language is acts of service. It's not verbal affirmation. So he sees me and thinks I look beautiful. He goes and takes out the garbage to show me. Well, that doesn't help me. That does not help me because I'm verbal affirmation, so I need to hear it. Well, he doesn't speak that language. So it's basically like me dating someone who only speaks German, right? We've got to figure out a way to communicate. So what Michael and I do is when we feel the tensions mounting, we go, okay, powwow. We sit down together and go, bigger picture is more important. Keeping harmony in this house for our children is the most important thing to us. Keeping a godly, even-keeled home, right? That's full of fun and music and laughter. And right now, you are not meeting my needs. You are not giving me what I want. So I can either be resentful and fight with you about it, or we can pull the romantic relationship off the table for a while and then, like, come back to it when when cooler heads can prevail. And that's what we do. And the ex- my expectation, I know that seems so untraditional, and people go, well, what does that even mean? Well, I'll tell you what it means. It literally means that I shift my thinking into looking at my husband as you are my best friend and my partner um, in running this household and raising these children. But for the next couple of weeks, romantically, I'm not interested in either of you. And we're just going to sort of take the pressure off. Yeah, take a break. Take a break. You know, because this notion that you have to just be in love and have sex five times a week and do all this fun fooling around stuff, like, it's just, it's, the pressure is so much to live up to that. And sometimes we feel like we're failing as a couple because I'm like, babe, we haven't had sex in three weeks. And he's like, we haven't? I'm like, no. And then I start to feel bad about it. And it makes me feel less than, and I feel like he doesn't love me or he's not, you know, and I start to spiral out of control. And when I spiral out of control, I become very self-destructive. And that is not healthy for the mother of his children. And he knows that. So we just found what works for us. It won't work for everybody. I'm sure it doesn't. I'm sure people are listening now going, that's the most absurd thing I've ever heard, but it works for us. And you know what? We will probably make it to the end. Because we are able to, we're able to uh, alleviate expectation. I was just going to say, to me, it sounds like you're able to not alleviate expectations, but you're able to change your expectations, that expectations can be fluid. Maybe, as you say, like in one month, the expectation is, hey, we're going to be friends, we're not going to have sex, we're not going to get into the romantic stuff. But the next month, it may be different. Like you can, one can change individually, also as a couple, you can change your expectations and it's okay. Yeah, and and it doesn't mean that we don't love each other and it doesn't mean that we don't work and it doesn't mean that we're not happy overall. It It just means that, you know, we have hit, Michael and I have hit shaky ground a lot. You know, we've, we've hit that, you know, can we keep going? Is this, right. Can this work long term? And, you know, there have been a few times where I've asked him for a divorce and he says to me, no, because that's not the answer. Divorce is not the answer. We don't have to break the marriage. We have to change the marriage. And if, you know, I think people feel like that's your only option, you know, as far as like traditional people go, they go, well, you're not going to have sex and you're not going to whatever, then what's the point? Well, I, you know, 
for us, it was like divorce. You know, it was like there's only two options, right? Stay it becomes an all or, or nothing. I think what you're saying is, Jamie, becomes, or people think, or couples, or it's an all or nothing thing. You have to do it this way, and if you don't do it this way, then you have to get divorced. And there's a right. lot in between. And we, right. And we don't want to get divorced. We genuinely do not want to get divorced. And we know that. So we would rather have uh, an unconventional marriage certain times that works for us. But the beautiful thing about Michael and I is we always find our way back together. You know, sometimes it takes a week. Sometimes it takes a month. Sometimes it takes three months. But we always find a way back to each other. And in, and, in, and, the, and the romance, it, it comes back. You know, it just does because, because we love each other. So it's not forced. And it comes back organically, and when it comes back, it's wonderful. And sometimes it stays for a while, and other times, you know, it doesn't. It stays for one night. Um, but it works for us, and we're so fine you have with a goal. That. The goal is you want to stay married, and you want to be a fan, and, and you want to be married, and you have your three kids. And uh, but how you achieve that goal changes, and and it's fluid. Yes. And you, yeah, and I think exactly. fluidity. Yep. I wanted to ask you, you know, in terms of your. Uh, you know, besides the book, we're talking, obviously, this fits into what the book is all, your book is all about, but your web series, like, these are the kinds of, like, some of the questions that you get or some of the, the discussion um, revolves around just what you're talking about in, in, in the book, uh, as you said earlier. Um, have you had, like, talk to us about some of those, you know, some of the, the feedback that you get in terms of when you, um, in coffee talk. Well, I mean, people who watch Coffee Talk love it. I mean, they absolutely love it. They are loyal. They tune in every morning. If they miss it in the morning, they go back and watch it at night. Um, I have fans from all over the world. Australia loves it. Ireland loves it. London loves it. Um, Tons of people watch in Canada. Um, And they really, you know, I think they tune in because I have a very real approach to life in general. You know, I, I was a bully for a long time. I was a damaged, toxic human being who made a lot of mistakes. And now I'm just trying to uh, teach other people the lessons I learned from those mistakes and also how to protect the peace in their life because, you know, people will try to rob you of your joy left and right. People will tell me, like, your marriage is never going to work because you know, you do this or Michael does that. And I think to myself, you know, says who? And I'm very open. When I turn that camera on in the morning, it's just me and my pajamas and a cup of coffee. And I say, like, good morning and welcome to Coffee Talk. And whatever I talk about, you know, yesterday I talked to, I talked directly to parents who are being ghosted by their own children or disrespected by their children. Today I spoke about our need for gossip, our incessant need for gossip. And it's, where it stems from and how destructive it really is. And we think it's hurting the person we're talking about, but the only person it's hurting is us. But more importantly, where does that need come from? Let's talk about why. Um, and I speak about that because on Jersey Bell, there were, you know, seven girls on the show with me and only five of them are still in my life. And, you know, I constantly am getting asked the same questions over and over. What happened to this girl and this girl? Why don't you talk to this girl and this girl? And it's like, I don't talk about it, yet you keep asking. 
what is your insatiable need to know why? It's not my story to tell, you know, and, it, and if I'm not friends with someone, I shouldn't be talking about them in any capacity, yet they won't let it go. So some of the things that I talk about on Coffee Talk are, you know, parenting. Um, I was the number one parenting blogger for Yahoo Parenting, and I think it was because I was very honest about how I would talk to my children about the fact that their mom was a bully for a long time or the fact that my husband was a perfect father but a terrible husband for a long time. And it wasn't until we went to therapy that we figured out we could make it work. But before that, I mean, I was miserable. You know, he was father of the year, but I, I was dying inside as a wife. So, you know, I mean, coffee talk is just sometimes I pull from fan comments. Um, other times I talk about what's going on in my own life. And other times I find things that are, you know, in the media that are relatable, but I don't make it about the media. I just take the sentiment from what's happening. Um, you know, I, I talked a lot about how <laughs> it was interesting, um, how, uh, for a long time, so many women on my in my coffee talk community struggled with feeling left out, not included as grownups. And they struck and they were embarrassed. You know, I'm embarrassed that I'm not invited to things. They, you know, other moms leave me out. This is like a reoccurring theme. And then the whole thing with the immigrant conversation came up, right? And how quickly these same women who were struggling with feeling left out were so quickly to say, feel the borders, build the wall, do this, do that. And I thought, how ironic is it that you feel so left out in your own life, but like you're the first person to shut everybody else out. And I'm not, certainly not a political, I'm not political, coffee talk's not political, it's not religious, it's just simply like, let's talk about the human connection. But it's things, it's things like that that I'm able to call them out on their, on their behavior and go like, look what, look, look what is plaguing you in your life, but look how you're treating others. Until we start treating others the way we want to be treated, we can't bring that kind of change into our life. So you're, 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 Helping these women, and I assume, is it all women? It, it doesn't seem like it's 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 ninety one percent women and nine percent men, and our men are wonderful and very loyal. Yeah, and, and who are the men? Because you know, husbands. yeah, their I mean, husbands. What their husbands? To save their marriages. Most of them are husbands trying to save their marriages, and they're desperate for a female perspective because their wife at this point has shut down. So they write me letters, and I typically. <laughs> I typically will answer the men that write in because there's not as many and I know they, it's a different, I can't, they don't, they don't process dialogue the same way women do. So they, you know, they hear coffee talk, but they still don't hundred percent get it. <laughs> so sometimes I have to take it two steps further for them. Yeah, they need more help, more of your they help, need- right? They need, um, well, you know, women can do, women do gray a lot better. You know, you can talk generically about a topic and women can find a way to apply it to their own life. Men need you to very specifically address their actual specific situation. Uh So women can generalize. They can generalize. Yeah, I think that's true. And men have more of that. I always call it the engineering mentality, sort of this is the way it is, and they take it very literally. And, yes, then you have to hold their hand and show them how it applies, whatever your advice is, in other areas. Yes, ma'am. But the book is really funny 
it is, it is, everybody who read it, you can look at the Amazon reviews. If you go to Amazon and look up the Southern Education of a Jersey Girl. Which I need. I think there's over, a, yeah. there's over 130 reviews. Um, you know, it had, uh, it's got four and a half stars. And the reviews are very like, I read this book in one day. I read this book in two days. This is the funniest. You'll laugh. You'll cry. And it's true. You, you, you really will. It's a very real, open, honest, fun look at how I navigate making friends as an adult in a new place and a mother-in-law who's, you know, set in her ways and a husband who doesn't give a lot, you know, emotionally and having babies and just all of it, just from all of it. I I think I'm so proud of the way this book was received. It was on the, um, it made the bestsellers list for Publishers Weekly, which is a huge honor I do a book club every Wednesday night live on Facebook with the fans who love the book. Um, and I've done book signings, you know, where I've had over 300 people waiting. It's just been such an unbelievable blessing to reach women because, again, I was a mean girl for so long. So the fact that I can give back and help love women back to life and say, like, look, I made that mistake already. Here's, ha- here's what happened to me. Um, well, and I think the way you do it is, is great without, you know, I think it, it, sort of the context in which you do it. I mean, there are a lot of lessons to be learned. Like you say, you know, you have advice for women in navigating their life and their love, but you do it in a very funny way with very serious issues. I mean, very, yes. you know, you cover yes. the issues, but in a very funny way. We have to say goodbye. I want to mention the book again, The Southern Education of a Jersey Girl, Adventures in Life and Love in the Heart of Dixie. And we've been talking to the author, Jamie Premack Sullivan. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Thank you so much for having me. I loved it. I so appreciate it. Thank you. Yes. I do, too. We're going to take a break. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. 
VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Dr. Paul Thomas, MD. Uh, Dr. Thomas is author of The Vaccine-Friendly Plan, Uh Dr. Paul's Safe and Effective Approach to Immunity and Health from Pregnancy Through Your Child's Teen Years. He's a graduate of Dartmouth Medical School, did his residency at UC San Diego, and he practices integrative pediatrics. Uh, welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Dr. Thomas. Thank, thank you, Catherine. I'm happy and delighted to be on the show. I just have to say this one thing. Is this correct? You have 10 children? I, I always tease. It depends how you count. I have three biological. Most of the rest are adopted. The last one we had join our family, I brought her over from Zimbabwe to go to college. And so once she was living with us, she sort of became a family member. That's why I always tease nine or ten. Nine or ten, but what the, I guess the bottom line is once they come to your house, they never leave. So <laughs> that's what it sounds like. Once you the kids talk to come, my wife they don't, about that, and that yeah. was so true. Well, okay, so you are not only the expert in terms of being uh, a pediatrician, but also in your own personal family life. So, uh, But the vaccine-friendly plan, I mean, this whole controversy about vaccinations, and I, you know, my, one of my kids just had a baby, and boy, I, I never, I, I knew there was a, an issue, and it's been going on, I guess, for the past few years, but why all of a sudden is there all of this controversy about whether you vaccinate your kids uh, or should you vaccinate them at all? Or, um, you know, I, I know when, you know, 20, 30 years ago, you just sort of did what the physician told you and the pediatrician and you vaccinated them and, and that was it. But that's not true today. Right. Well, uh, the message I want to get across to listeners and those who will read the Vaccine Friendly Plan book is that we really shouldn't be having this all or none, you know, are you pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine discussion. We should be having a scientifically based discussion about each vaccine and whether it makes sense for your individual child's situation. So, you know, if, if think about antibiotics. Antibiotics are amazing. They're wonderful. They save lives. But do I give every person an antibiotic every situation? Of course not. I'm not pro-antibiotics or anti-antibiotics. It's a tool. And I feel like we need to get back to real science when we discuss vaccines rather than polarizing the discussion. But it seems it's easier, I don't, even for physicians, I mean, as you say, okay, an antibiotic, you, whatever you, you know, have an infection or whatever the problem, I mean, when my kids were younger, if you had an ear infection, they automatically gave you a, uh, an antibiotic, which now I think is not a best practice, like it's, it's changed, uh, you don't necessarily need an antibiotic, it will, you know, heal itself, the infection. Or if it's a virus, you don't use one anyway. But, okay, so now with the vaccine, um, isn't it true if you go to a traditional pediatrician's office, he or she has this schedule that the CDC puts out, you give so, you know, that there is a time frame and that everyone should follow it. Is that not true? <laughs> uh, sadly, that is about what happens. Um, my hope is that this book will create 
enough information out there, education, that we can have a paradigm shift. Let me give you a simple example that most of your listeners and most uh, even, you know, a high school education uh, person can understand. Let's talk about the hepatitis B vaccine. So when my kids, who are now in their 20s and early 30s, when they were growing up, that was a vaccine we gave to teenagers. You catch hepatitis B from sex and IV drug use. About 15 to 20 years ago, we rolled out across the country the move from giving hepatitis B to teenagers to giving it to newborns. In Oregon, where I was practicing and still practice, this change happened around 2001, 2002. So overnight, across the country pretty much, that vaccine was moved from teenagers to newborns. Now, why did we do that? We were told, well, maybe we'll eliminate hepatitis B because it's easier to vaccinate infants. They're a captive audience. It's harder to get teenagers in for a series of vaccines. That was true. And maybe we'll have this population grow up to be immune and we'll eradicate hepatitis B. Well, we now have 15 and 20-year data that shows it's not giving lasting protection. I'm not going to be surprised when they add a booster dose to teenagers at some point in the near future. So the most important detail that's overlooked, and actually I don't even think many pediatricians are aware of it, and certainly parents aren't aware of it, and they're not being told, and that is that this vaccine has 250 micrograms of aluminum. Aluminum is a known neurotoxin. There are studies dating back to 1999, Bishop in the New England Journal of Medicine, stating not to give more than 5 micrograms per kilogram. There's an FDA document that's been up since 2000, I have it in the appendix of my book, that very clearly states not to exceed 5 micrograms per kilogram, and uh, I'll quote, research indicates that patients with impaired kidney function, including premature neonates, who receive aluminum at greater than 4 to 5 micrograms per kilogram per day, accumulate aluminum at levels associated with central nervous system and bone toxicity. So we inadvertently are poisoning the 4 million babies born in America with a toxic dose of aluminum to prevent a disease that you catch from sex and IV drug use. You know, I have to stop you there because it's really interesting that you just picked Hep B, and this is before I had looked at your book, but uh, one of my children just had a, a baby a few months ago, and they wanted to do exactly what you're saying, brought the baby home, and they're ready to inoculate him with Hep B. And I, as a lay person, as a social worker, not a physician, but I said, you know, don't you get Hep, you get hep B from sex and IV drug use. Where is he going? Why would you need to do that now? To a, a time- exactly. <laughs> I mean, he's exactly. not going anywhere. So, okay, uh, why don't you hold off on that? And, you know, as you're, I'm listening to you. I'm not exactly sure what their decision was, but um, it, it was common well, it, sense, or I thought right, it was it is, anyway. Exactly. Yeah. It is absolutely common sense. And each year when the CDC comes out with their, you know, standard set of recommendations that everybody follows hook, line, and sinker, um, I keep waiting for them to move the hepatitis B back to teenagers. You see, I get labeled as anti-vaccine, and nothing could be further than the truth. I give vaccines every day in my office, and plenty of them. But this particular vaccine makes absolutely no sense, and it's yeah. actually causing harm when given this young to a very small individual, right? A newborn only weighs four or five kilos. 
if you're not supposed to give more than five per kilo, then 25 micrograms of aluminum is the maximum dose. I'm sure actually even less would be harmful. And we're injecting 250. So this is why my book is real strong on the science, all the science. You know, we tend to get sound bites. Vaccines are safe and effective. And for sure, vaccines have done wonders. I trained at a time when hospitals had plenty of childhood meningitis on the hospital wards, and we saw the Hib vaccine, which is against Haemophilus influenza type B, introduced in 1987 when I was practicing in training, and the rates of meningitis dropped noticeably. I mean, it was a wonderful vaccine. So it just it's time to individualize it and have it make common sense. You know, that concept of or one size fits all uh, is sort of something that I see practice a lot of the time, I guess, in medicine. They do that for all of us, not just in terms of don't, isn't that kind of a, when you look at the CDC guidelines, for instance, you know, even we do it when people have chemotherapy, it's kind of, I mean, I guess yeah. that's changing, but it's like this one size, and it doesn't, you know, I mean, and, and which is, like, you know, obviously what you're talking about in your book, and it's not all or nothing with these vaccines. Okay, so that's the HIB. But what about, what about the, the vaccines that, let's say, you rec- recommend, and, but given in what, a timely fashion? Do parents have the opportunity, and you cover this in the book, can you not do it in the same um, time frame, let's say, that's necessarily recommended, or there are some that you can eliminate? Or let's talk about some right. of those. Yeah. Yes. So taking them one by one, if I was going to just do a quick summary of the key points of my uh, proposed selective schedule, if you will will even call it a schedule, I think parents have to start somewhere, but they need to talk with their physician and do their research about each individual vaccine. But here's a few guidelines, and they're in my uh, appendix as far as a recommended approach, which I've done in my practice. By the way, we've looked at our data, and it's been submitted for publication, and out of over 1,000 children who were vaccinated the vaccine-friendly way, we have no new autism, no new autism spectrum. We have 238 children who did no vaccines, and they had no new autism or autism spectrum and were by far the healthiest kids of the whole study in all parameters looked at. The third group, which was the most heavily vaccinated group, was about almost 900 kids, and there were 15 cases of autism or autism spectrum. Now, the significance of my data was highly significant. The the probability this could happen by chance was 1 in 100,000. Now, this kind of research needs to be done on an even larger scale. We need a huge group of unvaccinated compared to a huge group of vaccinated according to the CDC schedule. And then we need to follow these kids, not for a year or two years or five years, but 10, 20 years and look at health outcomes. That study has never been done. And this is, I think, the reason we have ongoing controversy because until we really do the study, even the wonderful study that I'm trying to get published it's not enough. We need those big studies, sort of like what we did with tobacco, compared non-smokers to smokers, followed them for decades, and lo and behold, it became pretty clear. Tobacco so why aren't we causing... doing those studies? What, what is, what's the politics behind it? Well, money and politics, <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, and, and a lack of will, uh, which is unfortunate, because so much money is being made on the current schedule. When you think of 
just, I mean, if we could make one change, one change only, it would be just simply move the hepatitis B from newborns back to teenagers where it belongs. And realize, if a mom has hepatitis B, then their infant should have that vaccine. But in the U.S., the CDC reports it's one in 100 moms who have hepatitis B. My experience in some other literature says it's much less than that. I haven't had a single mom in my practice ever who had hepatitis B. Uh, so if we moved the hepatitis B from newborns to teenagers, the company that makes that vaccine will lose a billion dollars a year. Actually, I think it's more than that. Mm-hmm. Because you've got to think about it. We've got 4 million births per year in the U.S., and they're getting three of those vaccines in their infancy. And you're going to eliminate all that profit, and they're not going to start making that profit again until those kids are teenagers. They're just does not seem to be the will uh, that exists at the CDC in the committee that makes these recommendations. They apparently just don't have the will to do what makes scientific sense. And all I can say is it has to be money in politics. Yeah, so they're responding to what, the lobbyists from the uh, drug companies? Well, I'm not an expert on why the people who sit on that committee keep making the same mistake year after year when the data is just mounting. Uh, We do know that there is an an apparent revolving door between members who sit on the committee that makes vaccine recommendations and the pharmaceutical companies. Uh, Oftentimes, people who sit on those committees at the CDC make recommendations end up making millions working for pharma. So there seems to be perhaps some conflicts of interest, but you know, I, I'm, I can't make those accusations categorically. I'm just reporting what I've observed. Yep. Well, it's something to think about and something to, to I mean, it, it's obviously something that makes sense if you, to me anyway, as you're, as you're describing sure. it. Yeah. Sure. All right, so I mean, that's there has the, to be a reason that they're not using all the scientific data. And sadly, you know, we keep hearing that vaccines are safe and effective as if you as if you were saying antibiotics are safe and effective. Well, yes, they are a lot of the time for a lot of people, but they aren't safe and effective all the time for every child. Can we talk about okay, so we've talked you you know, the Hib um, and uh, Hep B. What other vaccines? What are the ones that they give immediately, let's say, you know, for to a newborn in the first 3 months? So Newborns get the Hep B, and then the next series of shots happens at two months, and that is the DPT. Main thing there is pertussis whooping cough. So we should talk about this one. This one is a tough one. Infants die every year in the United States from whooping cough, and it's not a fun death. They're gasping for air. They're on respirators. And anybody who's a pediatrician or an intensive care neonatologist uh, you know, or infectious disease experts, when they've experienced this, they are adamant you have to get the Tdap vaccine because, you know, it's just so horrible to, to, to experience and any death is horrible, right? So that's one of the vaccines given at two months that I actually recommend we give. However, it has a huge dose of aluminum. So there's a real trade-off there. I mean, you are injecting a toxic dose of aluminum, but you are providing a measure of protection. The problem with that vaccine is that the organism, so whooping cough, which we call pertussis, is actually changing the outer membrane, uh, pertactin protein in it. It's kind of technical, but anyway, it's changing itself so the vaccine is no longer effective. 
and we're seeing this on the rise across the country and around the world. So we need a better vaccine. This is the other big message, which uh, I don't, it, it frustrates me that we're not working harder to get better vaccines. Get the aluminum out of these vaccines, at least the ones that we're giving to little babies, and we're going to have to get a more effective vaccine to, to keep up with the changes the uh, organisms are making. So that's one. By the way, the CDC just started recommending the Tdap for pregnancy, and that horrifies me simply because you're injecting a toxic load of aluminum into a woman who's carrying a developing brain, right? That baby inside the womb is forming their brain. And knowing the studies we have on the toxicity to neurodevelopment of aluminum, it's pure insanity to inject aluminum during pregnancy. There are no long-term studies where you do that and then follow those kids for 5, 10 years to see what the neurological outcomes are. They simply don't exist. So the grand experiment on the American population is Tdap for pregnancy, and OBGYNs are pushing it hard. The CDC offers free materials for any doctor to put up in their office. And the other challenge doctors are under is that we are being graded on our quality of, of medicine. And quality measures are often how well do you vaccinate, for example. So a pediatrician who doesn't give all the vaccines all the time according to the CDC schedule is graded down as not a good doctor. And I'm afraid the OBGYNs must be under similar pressure because when I talk to my peers who are in that field, they are just adamant that they must do that vaccine. I could tell you why they're doing it. There is some common sense logic to giving that vaccine during pregnancy. The theory is the body, mom's body makes some antibodies against whooping cough. It's transferred to the baby, so the baby's born with extra protection. And there is a study recently published that shows, indeed, those babies are born with a little extra protection. A funny thing that was just published this last week, however, not funny at all, babies who, whose Got this vac- whose mothers got this vaccine while they were pregnant are not responding as well to the vaccine as infants. And that has not been factored in. It's a brand new study just out. So we actually long-term might be doing more harm than good. Time will tell. So what do we do, um, Dr. Thomas? What do we do as consumers? I call it consumers or as patients or as parents. I mean, most people or many people are, first of all, afraid to confront their physician, their pediatrician. If they're told to do something, then they just do it. I mean, I think that's changing to some extent or to a, maybe to a large extent. I know that you know, right. young parents are online. They have a lot of information, have access to information. But some, you know, most or many are really afraid if, if the pediatrician tells you to do something, you do it. Um, right. And, yeah, so how do you bridge that? What do you do how, if you, you know, you read your well, book, for instance, but they can't all go yeah. to you? As, <laughs> yeah. Right. I definitely think they need to read this book, maybe give it to their pediatrician or at least show it to them. Uh, perhaps take the pediatrician, the FDA article that shows just a simple document that shows the aluminum toxicity. It's in the appendix of my book. Uh, And frankly, you know, the sad thing that's happening is as more and more of this information comes out, those of us who are presenting this information are being attacked as being anti-vaccine, which is totally not the case. But in fear, so I, I was one of those pediatricians who was mainstream, vaccines are safe and effective, and I would just sort of categorically dismiss 
anybody that brought concerns to me until I did the research myself, okay? And, and I think I, many times in my career, patients have brought me articles or have brought me a book and said, Dr. Thomas, would you look at this? And I would because I'm, I'm always curious. I mean, when you lose your curiosity to learn new information, you know, find a new doctor. You know what I mean? So, and don't be afraid uh, to find a new doctor. It's okay. I mean, they, you know. It's okay. Yeah, it's I mean, okay I to do that. until pediatricians have pain in their pocketbook, and I know my peers are going to hate me for saying this, but if you're not willing to open your eyes and look at the data that's out there on aluminum toxicity, just, just take that one simple fact. I mean, there are studies showing that the more vaccinated we are, the higher our infant mortality. That study was published a couple years ago. I mean, the studies on aluminum and a syndrome called Asia, autoimmune syndrome induced by adjuvants are piling up. We now know that aluminum is triggering autoimmune disorders. Chronic disease is on the rise. The, the rates are staggering. My practice is full of kids with autism, autism spectrum, anxiety, depression, ADD, ADHD, and then things like diabetes are on the rise, asthma, eczema, all the allergic conditions. Why? These things weren't there when I was a kid 50, 60 years ago. They yes. certainly, I didn't see them when I was in medical school, and now it's at epidemic proportions. Our kids are struggling. They're suffering. There is a reason. It's not just vaccines. It's toxins. Acetaminophen is horrible. Aspartame, which is your NutraSweet, is horrible toxin. Uh, pesticides, herbicides, flame retardants, the list is short but significant, right? Or actually, yes. it could be long. Uh-huh. But... Parents need to do everything they can, but one of the simplest things you can do that I think has the greatest impact besides avoiding acetaminophen and aspartame and breastfeed your infant is read this book, The Vaccine-Friendly Plan, and learn about which vaccines you can safely give or at least more safely give and which make no sense at all, like the hepatitis B. We often are challenged on measles. You, you remember the Disneyland epidemic? Yep. Yep. So that, quote, epidemic really was only a couple hundred cases. And in the entire country that year, the epidemic year, there were less than a thousand cases. There've been no deaths from measles in a decade. I still recommend the MMR vaccine, but not when it's currently being given. That particular vaccine, as illustrated by the data that was highlighted in the movie Vaxxed, people should see that movie, by the way. It's just a documentary. Again, it gets labeled as being anti-vaccine. It's nothing of the sort. It's simply a documentary to share some information that the CDC knew. They've known since 2002 that the MMR was linked with increased autism, and they chose to hide that data and publish a study in 2004 that said the opposite, that there was no link. And I've looked at some of that data. It's pretty convincing. So I feel it's safer, and that's what the CDC data actually showed, to give the MMR after age three. Now, one very important point to your listeners, if you have a family history of autism or severe autoimmune conditions, do not vaccinate. I mean, when the autism rate is now 1 in 45 or 1 in 67, 63, you know, it's way less than 1 in 100. No question about it. The risk for those of you who already have family histories of autism or severe autoimmune problems obviously is way worse than that. And you have to do absolutely everything to avoid toxins, including avoiding vaccines, which might stimulate an autoimmune response. Well, I mean, then your book is key. We have like one minute left, so I, the 
vaccine-friendly plan, you've got to go out and get this book. I mean, as I'm listening to you, I have so many people that I want to give the book to as a gift. Um, yes. Yeah. This book should be read by people before they get pregnant, at least while you're pregnant, and then everybody who has a child or is going to have a child or cares about kids, get this book into people's hands. I think it's going to save lives. Yep. So be prepared. Dr. Paul Thomas, MD, the vaccine-friendly plan. You can buy it online, bookstores everywhere. Um, Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Very informative. Thanks for having me, Catherine. Uh, We are going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.